uh, now as we prepare to come before the preaching and the hearing of the Word of God. And you can turn with me if you've got a Bible, if you're reading out of your bulletin, to the book of Exodus in chapter 4. If you're reading in your bulletin, take note uh, that the section you'll read is just a, a little excerpt there. It's not the entire text. Um, but I'll read this entire section of verses here through the, through the end of the chapter. But before we read, would you please pray with me? Oh Lord, we join with the psalmist as we pray. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word do I hope. Lord, we put our hope here because these are your holy words to us. Help us now. Give us ears that are attentive, minds that are alert, and hearts that would embrace these things with glad belief. Thank you for being gracious to us. We ask you to guide us now by your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the book of Exodus in chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse 21 and then read through the end of the chapter. Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But... I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone, and it was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And so he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Mm. This is the word of God. Now, there is a lot of ground covered in this text. A lot happens here. And in this section, we see many things that we might come to expect by now in this point of, of Exodus. We see here that God 
knows what is upcoming. He knows that Pharaoh's heart is to be hardened, that the plagues are already set in place. We see also that God sends a rescuer to his people, that Moses is here returning to Egypt and he's being joined by his brother Aaron that the Lord has sent as well. We see also that God is the one who is honored. That God, when the people hear his words, when they see his signs, they bow before God in worship. We'll get to unpack all of these things as they continue to play out in Exodus in the coming weeks. But, but, we also see things here that we might not expect. Sandwiched in the middle of this text is one of the strangest accounts in the whole Bible. (laughs) It's at least, at least according to me, the strangest account in Exodus. And if I weren't preaching straight through the book of Exodus, I don't know that I would ever preach on this text here, uh, but here we are. Sandwiched right in the middle here are these three verses, 24, 25, and 26, that we'll focus on today. This is the circumcision passage. We see in these three short verses that Moses' wife, Zipporah, conducts an emergency circumcision in order to save a life. Hmm. And if we read this text... It just kind of pops in and pops right back out, and it leaves us dangling with a lot of questions. Why is the Lord seeking to put someone to death here? Who exactly is the Lord looking to kill? How does Zipporah know what to do in response to that? Why why is circumcision the solution to it? Uh, why Why are feet involved? And whose feet exactly are they? And and what's the meaning here at the end of of this odd saying, bridegroom of blood? There's a lot of these uh, things that might leave us just scratching our head here. And we're not the only ones. It it leaves uh, scholars scratching their heads as well. There are too many questions for us to address here in one Sunday, even if we did know all the answers, which we don't. But let me pause here just a moment before we actually look at this text and unpack it. We should address a particular doctrine here first. You ready? Get ready for doctrine. It's a big word, too. If you're a note taker, lick your pencil or whatever you've got. Get ready. Big word coming. The doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. The perspicuity of Scripture. I'm not going to spell it for you, just misspell it and look it up later. It's a a tough word, I know. Ironically, perspicuity has become a very unfamiliar word, but it's similar to a more familiar word to us, uh, conspicuous. We know what conspicuous means. Perspicuity means clarity. In other words, the perspicuity of Scripture is that the Bible is generally clear. So we see in our Westminster Confession this summary of it, which is a good one. Not all things in Scripture are equally plain, but the things that are necessary for us to know and believe for our salvation are clear. 
the Bible is really clear about the most important things. The Bible is clear that God is the creator of all things and that he made his creation good, all good. The Bible's also clear that from Adam, the first man, on, we have abandoned that good and that all have sinned, not some, all have sinned. I have sinned, you have sinned, and we, by our sin, have brought upon ourselves the wrath of God. The Bible's also clear that our only hope to be saved and to be rescued, to be returned to the goodness of God, is Jesus. Jesus is our only hope. This Jesus, the God and the man of Jesus, became a sacrifice of sin in our place. The Bible's clear that by grace, through faith in Jesus alone, we are counted righteous before God and brought into the kingdom of God. The Bible's clear that those who put their faith in Jesus are given a new heart, are given the Holy Spirit who then trains us to live in his goodness as we learn his righteousness. And the Bible is clear that all of this is meant to increase our worship and our love for our great God. The summary of all these things is the gospel. We call all this the gospel, or in other words, the good news that Christians really believe. The gospel is news. It is not a puzzle to solve or to scratch your head and work hard to try to figure out. It's news. It's a report that is plain to hear. So a sort of ancient classic way to put this is that the Bible is a river that is both deep enough for an elephant to swim in, but also shallow enough for a lamb to wade through. It's good, because I don't have the swimming skills of an elephant, always. <laughs> I need to be able to wade through this. So in order to, to read the Word of God and to understand it, we don't have to be scholars or experts. We don't have to learn how to read the original Greek and Hebrew. We can see and embrace the gospel as Christians because the Bible is perspicuous. It is clear. Now, that then brings us to a question. What do we do about a passage like this that is less clear? We don't want to fixate or obsess on this. We want to major in the major things, to focus on the most clear things in the Bible. But we also don't want to just toss this out and move on. There are still fruit on the branches here, good fruit that is good for us in some way. Uh, one of my favorite verses about this, just a single verse in Romans chapter 15. Romans 15 uh, verse 4 is helpful for me and for us in these things. Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. 
Did you catch that? That whatever is written in the past, in other words, all of Scripture, all the words of God's Word, all of it in some way is instruction for us. It's more than that, but it's all instruction. And that, in, that instruction is to give us endurance, encouragement, and hope. That's good fruit. I want that for me and for us. So we might have to reach for the fruit on the high branches here, but they are worth stretching ourselves for because we don't want to miss the instruction here and the hope that God has for us. So we're going to do our best, as best we can, to look here and to unpack what's happening in this text and then to see how this might instruct us now. Let's look here together. If we, let me read the first verse of this section again. Exodus 4, verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Okay. So, one of the things that makes this text so tricky is because it is full of ambiguous pronouns. What is uh, referred to as the him here. So if I'm in conversation with someone, just chatting with them, and they say, she went to the store this morning, it's possible that I might think the she is, you know, Jill, but that person actually means Kim, and I just misunderstood what the she is there. There might be some confusion, in other words. This account has a bunch of pronouns, you know, him and he and you, that we're not exactly clear or sure who they refer to. In these three verses, 24, 25, and 26, in fact, there's only one person who's actually named, and that's Zipporah, which is the wife of Moses. In fact, not even Moses is named here. The translators, at least in my Bible translation, have put Moses' name in once, that uh, Moses' feet are described here. But if you've got a Bible, not just the bulletin I've printed, you'll notice that that word Moses has a footnote on it, in which the translators tell you underneath the original Hebrew just says it's his feet. And their best guess as to who the his is there is, is Moses. So... We're not sure. We also see here that there's a person who is circumcised. That person, we're told, is Zipporah's son, which would seem to be clear. <laughs> but there's also some ambiguity here. Because earlier, back in verse 20 of this same chapter, uh, we see Moses took his wife and his sons sons, plural, that Moses had more than one son. And so why is there only one son who is mentioned here? And who is that son? Whew. The best way, if I've lost you here, come back. I know this is uh, tricky. The best way to respond to tricky questions of ambiguity is to look at the context so if I've heard someone say, uh, she went to the store this morning, uh, but then she went back to her classroom, that gives me some more information. 
If I go, oh, this person's a teacher. That's not Jill. You know, oh, maybe, she, maybe the person is talking about Kim. We need to look at the context here. So if we look at the immediate context here, if you're looking at a Bible page and not just the section I've, I've spaced out for you, the immediate context right before this circumcision, uh, circumcision the Lord is talking about firstborns. He's talking about firstborns. If you look, he says in verse 22 that the people uh, of Israel are his own firstborn. And then he says, he mentions the final plague that he will do before Pharaoh lets the people go, that he will take the life of Pharaoh's firstborn son. So we seem here to still have firstborns in mind as we now move into this section talking about Moses' family. So it seems as if these ambiguous pronouns are a reference to Moses and Zipporah's firstborn son. His name, by the way, is Gershom. We learned that from another sex, uh, section, but it's a reference to their firstborn son. So now let me read the text again with Gershom put in instead of the pronouns and see if that helps us. Verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, Gershom, and sought to put Gershom to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son Gershom's foreskin and touched Gershom's feet with it and said, surely you, Gershom, are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let Gershom alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, maybe that helps. I hope a little. But it may still be a little bit confusing for us. So let me try as best I can uh, to recreate this scene and then summarize for us at the very end what's happening. So don't tune out. Here we go. Long before Moses, in fact, centuries before, back in the days of Abraham. The Lord had made promises to Abraham and then to all of Abraham's descendants. And those promises that the Lord made are called his covenant. Part of it is he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the Lord's covenant. Then the sign of the covenant, we see this back in Genesis chapter 17, the sign of the covenant is that every male in Abraham's house was to be circumcised. The Lord says uh, actually that my covenant will be in your flesh. And that would be a sign that the house was under the covenant. So a circumcision, in other words, was sort of like the, uh, the stamp or the seal of a notary public. You know, if you ever have a legal document that you have to call someone special in to do this thing for you, that that stamp from the notary public confirms the validity of the thing. And there are serious consequences that come if that seal or sign is missing. So now... Generations later, Moses is descended uh, from Abraham, and he is also under the Lord's covenant. Here, Moses is living in a foreign land of Midian. He's been there for roughly 40 years. And in that time, he's gotten married, had a few kids, and for some reason, 
he did not circumcise his sons. He did not put upon them the sign of the covenant. It's likely that he and his wife Zabora had talked about it, <laughs> that they uh, wrestled with it on some level, given that her response, and she seems to know what's going on here. Maybe they even argued about whether or not to do this. We don't know. Uh, but at the very least, he did not do it. He did not circumcise at least his firstborn son. So then, in the sections we've just come out of, uh, the Lord calls Moses at the burning bush to go back to Egypt to save his people. And so Moses, you know, packs up his donkeys, uh, he, he bundles up his family, and they all head out. And on the way, they meet a sudden interruption. That somehow the Lord is about to take the life of Moses' firstborn, Gershom. We don't know how that was to happen, how his life was to be taken. We assume there was something physically evident that they could see something was wrong with Gershom. Perhaps he was, perhaps he was very sick suddenly, or perhaps he, he went into a seizure of some sort. At least they could see there was something immediately serious with their son, and they were given some time here to respond. Moses appears to do nothing. At least we have no record of Moses responding to this. And sadly, that's not surprising, because so far what we've seen of Moses is that he is a highly reluctant leader. But his wife, Zipporah, does respond. And whatever she's seeing, she doesn't uh, launch into CPR. <laughs> Uh, she doesn't call the doctor, that might be good, but somehow she sees that this is more than just a medical problem. So she takes out a flint knife and she circumcises her firstborn son. The reference to the feet here, by the way, is likely a euphemism for his groin area, I'll say, where the circumcision occurs. And then as she does, or after she does, uh, she says this unique phrase that's perhaps part of her Midianite custom. We don't really know that you're a bridegroom of blood, or assuming this is a reference to Gershom, it could also be translated, you're a relative of blood, or you're a kin of blood, uh, similar to our phrase, you know, we're blood brothers, sort of like that. Now, that's a recreation of the scene, and all of this is still a little odd, but it's especially odd that the circumcision that she does on Gershom works. That it seems to stop what's happening. Verse 26, so he, the Lord, let him, Gershom, alone. The Lord relents here. And the boy does not die, but lives. Now, let me try to summarize all of this very concisely if I can. And this is my best shot at a summary. What the Lord is about to do to the Egyptians in the tenth and final plague, in taking the lives of all of their firstborn, the Lord nearly did to Moses' family too. Let me say that again. What the Lord was about to do to the Egyptians, he nearly did to Moses' family 
too. The only thing that saved him, them, here is this blood circumcision, is the mark or the sign of the covenant. And what we see in this text in Moses here is a foreshadow of what is about to come for them. We know in the final plague of Exodus, uh, final plague of Egypt before the people exit on their exodus out of the land, the destroyer will come and take the life of all the firstborn in the land. All. And he doesn't just skip over the people of Israel automatically because they're nice or because they're good, or because they even happen to have Abraham as their father, the only thing that will save the people of Israel is the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. That's the sign of the covenant upon them. And if it is missing, Israel's firstborn son will die too. That's not even just true in this particular scene for Israel. On a much larger scale, in the final days, in what we might call the great exodus, the greatest exodus, the accuser will come. And he will call out sin before God to try to take people to their second death. And he doesn't just skip over the Christians because they're nice or because they're good or because they happen to be part of a Christian family. The only thing that can save us is the blood of Jesus on the doorpost of the heart, is the sign of the covenant. And if it is missing, they will perish too. What we see in this strange scene with Moses is that Moses and his own family need to be saved too. That's what's happening here. That's what's going on in this text now. What do we do with this? How is this event that was written in the former days now working for our instruction? We know a few things that it's not. This text is not telling us that if we suddenly get sick or have a seizure, we should check to see if we're circumcised. <laughs> you know, make sure you've got a flint knife on your hip pocket just in case emergency situations. That would be a very strange emergency room setting. We know that circumcision now in the, in the New Testament area is not the same for us. It looks different for us now. We also know that the sign of the covenant, circumcision here, is not itself what saved them. It's the expression of faith that was underneath the circumcision. So those are things we should not do. If you suddenly get sick, it's probably not about whether or not you're circumcised. But here are two things that I think this text does instruct us in. Just two. There's plenty, probably plenty more, but I've only got two this morning. 
Two things of instruction. The first is this. Faith must lead us to obedience. Let me say that again. Faith must lead to obedience. This is not to say that we can work our way to God. If that were the case, we'd be saved by works and not by faith in Jesus. But we also know that faith without works is dead. There are some people who say that they believe in God, who claim to be a Christian, but do not care one lick about following God. Don't care one bit about what he says. Don't seem to be affected one bit by his discipline. That is a dead faith. We could see here how seriously the Lord takes obedience as a product of faith, as an outcome of faith. If Moses had only obeyed God simply in the first place, if he'd put the sign of the covenant on his boys when he was supposed to, this unsettling scene would not have even needed to occur. So faith must lead to obedience. That's the first. Here's the second. Obedience must begin at home. Obedience must begin at home. There was a well-respected scholar, commentator on these things, that as I read through what others were reading about this text, he began with a very wise observation. He wrote this about this text. He said, if Moses was to carry out the divine commission with success, he must first of all prove himself to be a faithful servant of Jehovah in his own house. Did you catch that? If Moses is going to be a successful leader in leading the Lord's people out of Egypt and being the one whom the Lord will use to rescue his people. If he is to do that, he must first of all prove himself a faithful servant of God in his own house. So do you see the Lord at work in yours? In your house? Do you want to be the light of the world? We start by becoming the light of our own backyard. Do you want to be the salt of the earth? We start by becoming salt in our kitchens. Even if your house is just you right now, even if you're the only one that lives under your roof, start by the ones closest to you. Start by practicing faithfulness there with a relative or a neighbor or perhaps a co-worker. How will the Lord mold you into a shining beacon of his peace if you are always nagging your husband or ignoring your wife? How will the Lord shape you into the spitting image of his love if you can't even say the words, I love you, to your own brother or sister or friend? 
How will the Lord build you into a powerful force of prayer that can move mountains for missionaries and for governments and even moving forces in the midst of pandemics? How will he do that if you don't even pray for the faith of your own kids or your own church or your own heart? How will the Lord make Moses into a rescuer of an entire generation to bring them out of slavery through the parting of the Red Sea unless the Lord will first teach him faithful obedience through the foreskin of his own son? Faith must lead to obedience, and obedience must begin at home. It will do us well to seek this, to look for the ways in which the Lord would enact this. But I will say, finally, just in closing, this is not meant to crush us If you feel a weight of this, maybe that's a good thing, a work of the Spirit in your heart, but it is not meant to crush us. Somehow this is to build hope. How does this make us hopeful? (laughs) Because maybe if it's true for you as much as it is for me, you see how much I've failed in this and just how much I need Jesus as my Savior and power to do these things. We know that our God is greater than all of our sins and all of our failures. It is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. The hope here is that Jesus is the one working through you, if you're a believer, working through you to do this, to follow him in this. Jesus is the one who will establish in you true faith. Jesus is the one who will create in you true obedience. Jesus is the one who will cut in you even a true circumcision of the heart so that you will come to love the Lord with all of your heart and all of your soul that you may truly live. Would you pray with me? Ah, our Lord, thank you for giving us this sign of the covenant. Would you put the sign of your covenant in Jesus on our hearts? Lord, would you work in us a true faith and true obedience that we may live your ways from the inside out? Cause us to seek this and to praise you for doing this in and through us. You are a good, wise, and faithful God, and we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.